Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at the Block. On the other side of the mic, Lule Demise, who is the head, the CEO of eToro US. We're very glad to have you on the show. We've been waiting with long bated breath to have you join us. It's been an interesting time for the market. I'm excited to get your perspective. You have a storied career on Wall Street. I I think it might probably take up half of the show just to run through your your resume <laughs> to go through right with firms like JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, TD, Ally Invest being the most recent. And now you're sort of running that strategic vision there for eToro's US kind of infiltration. Uh, you know, eToro has been is an early adopter. First off, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Etoro has been a long, um, long friend of the show. I think Yoni was probably like the third or fourth guest back when just me and my my mother listened to this show. Now, now we're we're looking at millions of people, and don't let that get you nervous. But it shows how far we've come as an industry. So, a lot of companies at the time were trying to break into the U.S. market. Uh, if you rewind the clock two years ago, uh, Bitflyer. Um, FTX was still early. I don't know if they were looking at the U.S. There was also obviously Binance with Binance America that then became Binance U.S. Um, some succeeded, some did not. So you you have this big background that I want to get into, but what's your sort of uh, strategy there to kind of stake a flag in, in, in this market? I mean, you know, part of it is, I think, because we have such a global footprint, it gives us a little bit more wiggle room and uh, cushion, if you will, to be able to have the patience to win. As you know, sometimes it's not so much because you didn't have the great idea when you first showed up, but it's, do you have the sort of the pocketbooks to be able to endure that, right? Um, so eToro is deeply committed to uh, becoming um, a major player in the U.S. Uh, it already is a massive global player um, in retail investing with over 24 million um, registrants. As you know, it's a social platform. So part of it is just we have the, the pockets for that endurance. The other part of it is also, you know, we think we have something really special that um, 
understanding that the retail investor needs at the epicenter engagement, which comes in the form of social and education simplicity, which is something we're really committed to as our platform. Like we're really committed not to turn into another uh, Wall Street shop that, you know, you need a PhD to navigate your your environment in. And then, of course, making sure that it's fun and engaging um, and being relevant uh, in terms of what the customer wants. So we think we have both the ingredients uh, from social to copy investing to other things, as well as the endurance to be able to to make our mark in the U.S. So what does it look like on a day like today where we see NASDAQ composite swing down, swing back up, crypto swing down, swing back up? Uh, One thing that has long been an issue is resiliency of these platforms, knowing that they're going to be up when things are volatile. Um, but, But just on the ground level, like, you know, operating a platform like this, what does it look like on a day? Like today, Monday, January 24th, where we we saw uh, a hawkish Fed kind of uh, invoke fear into the market and then it kind of shake it off later in the day. Like, what what does that look like running a platform? Yeah, you know, part of it is that what what the last few years have taught us is that volatility invites retail engagement which is something to pause and sort of really marvel at. Because if you recall, our forefathers, the first thing you talked about when you talked about a retail investor was they buy what? They buy high and they sell low, right? Um, And I think that, you know, part of the 08 crisis was that there was a massive shift that happened in people's minds where they said, and I mean 08, I don't mean just COVID, right? Where people started saying, oh, I see, like, when this stuff goes down, that that could be where, where the sale is happening, right? That could be where my powder that was dry that I should put into, into the market. So the retail investor is just not getting fooled as quickly as anymore. Now, that doesn't mean markets should go down and people should be foolish about investing every time markets go down, right? But it does mean that there's a shrewdness to understanding that investing is a long game. And so when the dips happen, it could be an opportunity to come in. And I think that's what, ha- and that's how we run our business. Um, you know, we up any kind of market insight and commentary when volatility hits, because we know our consumers, they need insight at that moment, because they're actually thinking, should I put powder, you know, should I put money in the market or not? So for us, it's about our resiliency of our platform during when, when those events happen, as well as being showing up with context uh, so that people have that context in that moment. Typically, we, we, we see cycles play out in the same way over different periods. Um, cascading liquidations may drag down the market and hedge funds, large traders buy up that dip. But it's typically those more sophisticated investors buying up that dip at the bottom than the retail trader but regardless um if you if you zoom out you there there is this backdrop that makes the idea of any toro entering us or just operating a brokerage platform right now very appealing which is it seems like the retail trader which was kind of uh which became like the zeitgeist of the market in 2020 is here to stay i'm trying to find some data that i noticed in the wall street journal the other day but while I find that, maybe you can kind of unpack this idea that, okay, it's here to stay. How do we serve them? They're different than they were 10 years ago, um, 20 years ago, when it was the sort of mm-hmm. Yahoo uh, you know, bulletin board chats. 
and it, it's a new opportunity as as a business and and you're trying to trying to serve that yeah well i think there's there's been a, a several sort of secular changes that made it so that when covid hit and when we had that kind of pandemic that it it sort of created an unpacking of several secular changes that happened at once so i would actually argue that the retail investor getting into the marketplace started before COVID. And I think what happened with COVID really sort of accelerated that. And there were several ways they were doing that. One was social media is like, it was nowhere what it is during COVID than when it was like at the last crash that we had. The kind of, you know, what I would call sort of that mind hive that we benefited from, like the global, you know, sort of hive of, of intelligence, the wisdom of the crowd. It just was not there in prior massive dips. The other part of it is the usage experience for a retail investor was not this easy in those days, right? It wasn't, you know, soft. the magic of software has made it so much easier to understand. You didn't need to be, you know, a very sophisticated user of financial services in this round to be able to engage. So there was a lot of stuff that I think that made it possible for all these secular trains to sort of make, make their way into what happened in the COVID crisis. The reason why I don't think it's gone away is because those trends were there in the first place. And so what's happened, what you're seeing is the sustainability of that user base, staying engaged, waiting for dips, getting in the markets when necessary. What I don't know, and I think this is where we're going to find out um, as time passes, is now that we see much more um, engagement and sort of like the moral clarity of should the retail investor be engaged? Should they not? You know, we didn't have this as much pre-COVID. And now there's a lot more narrative as to what the retail investor should be doing. I That part, I don't know. I don't know if that impacts, uh, does it make, does it have a chilling effect um, in terms of the engagement level of the retail investor? Or does it essentially get shrugged off and they keep on engaging? But ultimately, they're sticking around and they're engaging every time there's volatility. Totally. So I found the article and the, the data that the Wall Street Journal is tracking here is called, is is from Veda, or excuse me, Vonda Track. Um, but this is monthly net purchases of U.S. equities by individual investors. And it's totally sticking around. Like even when you think, yeah, there's some like, you know, if you go like, you know, certain months, you know, uh, summer months seem to be a bit slower. But if you look at October um, 2019, we saw $2.9 billion in monthly net purchases of U.S. equities by individual investors. That shot up to 26 billion in April 2020, which was kind of like that was the month that retail mania, you know, got into the lexicon. And it's really stayed around, you know, 26 wasn't even the highest level. January 2021 hit 27 billion um and then we're right around uh 22 billion in December. So th- those net purchases those monthly net purchases, they're not declining by any reasonable amount. The growth rate is 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 tipping a little bit, but you're absolutely right. The engagement level is still there, though, but the growth rate has dipped. And, you know, part of it could be what's interesting is like, if you think about it, we're not past the the pandemic yet, right? Like, it's, like look at me and you. We're, we're still talking on yeah. a screen. 
uh, working through our Wi-Fi connection issues, right? So ultimately, what I don't know is if and one day, and for all I know, the more the virtual is not a pandemic situation, but a way of life. The way, if the virtual remains a way of life, I don't see this abating in any way. Yeah, understood. There's sort of like, at the end of the day, a a, a time gap, or rather sort of a um, an availability of time that didn't exist to trade, that, that two-hour commute that most people had. There's also more um, balance sheet for individual people that didn't exist because maybe they're not driving as much, they're not going out to dinner as much because, you know, there is this... Um, there is more of an inclination to go out for dinner after a, a long day of working. If you're among colleagues and friends and there were, so you have more yep. money, but I think that's a really excellent point. And so like when you have that dynamic staying, you have that level of trading staying. Okay. Trading, but also checking it out on a regular basis, right? Like which you can't under underestimate also is not so much the investing or trading part of it, but also the level of in, sustained engagement, how many times they log in all the time and uh, in a good way, like to just track what's happening. Um, so yeah, I think that the virtual nature of our world is probably also helping in that sustainability. So that's something that people could look at and look at and say, all right, you don't have that hard of a job right now. This is this is this is good. This is a tailwind. Um, but also, you know, you look at Robinhood and its performance. I mean, it's down eighty-five some odd percent from its all-time high. It's trading at about nine point five billion dollars. I, I tweeted out today. I was I was gobsmacked by the fact that the, it's only trading a billion dollars above where it was valued for its Series F. And you look at that and you think, what a tough business to be in. Uh, and there's there's concerns hanging over Robinhood. Uh, obviously, will this level of activity sustain? We kind of unpack that. It probably could if we're still in this new paradigm. The new paradigm's here to stay. Um, does payment for order flow go away or, or get sort of outlawed by uh, uh, Commissioner Gensler? Um, but but be that as it may, it is it is still a tough business to be in. And and how do you navigate those complexities, and um, you know maybe learn from that that public market performance? Uh, they're not the only stock that's been kind of hammered, but it, it does raise maybe um, a, an important question for anyone operating in the brokerage space. Yeah. I mean, it is a tough business on several fronts, right? One is the the squeezing of just the revenues that come into that business, right? We've all gone commission-free now. So there's the, the margin sort of compression that's happening. And then it's also a tough business because it's highly regulated as it should be, right? Like ultimately, we're dealing with people's um, money. And I think that when it comes to healthcare and finances, it's understood that you know it's a regulated environment. And so those two things make it a tough business to be in. How we navigate that is that I price it into the price of bread, if you will. Like at the end of the day, I can't wake up every morning thinking to myself, this is a tough business to be in. It's already been priced in and the way we're doing it. The way that I think about it is um, if I wake up every morning thinking, oh, my God, we're so highly regulated, we won't get past that sort of, okay, what do we need to do to operate in this environment, to innovate in this environment? And that's kind of what I what I do to, to, to make sure that we can remain competitive and focused and not distracted by the difficulty of it. No doubt about it. 
this is not for the faint of heart, this business, right? At the end of the day, retail investing and trading, it goes up and down with the VIX. Um, and so ultimately, I think the way I look at it is this, it is a really noble profession to try to make excess of the capital markets to the regular person available. And that's that mission keeps us focused in terms of why we think this is an important business to be in. And you are kind of, I mean, you've seen it in both these big downturns, right? And so when you maybe harken back on your time at TD Ameritrade and the aftermath of, um, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, I think you were an executive director at Morgan Stanley before TD. Right before, yeah. <laughs> you kind of transitioned out. You were, you were, you were kind of. I think you went from institutional to retail, right? So you kind of got to see both sides of the market. Uh, I mean, I could imagine <laughs> wanting to leave the institutional side after two thousand eight, um, and and then maybe looking to help the little guy. But um, wh- when you think about the engagement of retail now being so supercharged, there are probably other things you can do with that audience than just get them to trade. So there's a social element, which I think a lot of companies are trying to like tap into. Public.com has been a big one. They're doing Twitter spaces or or they actually have their own version of Twitter spaces within their app. Um, and they have like a timeline feed similar to eToro's timeline feed. So what what can you guys do with the retail audience um, outside of social? Are there other products? Um, and then maybe it's more than trading, and that's how you kind of tap into this interest and then diversify the, the source of, re- of revenue to avoid that cyclical trading nature. Yeah. So a few things. I th- I'd say, you know, the retail investor is as much a culture and a, and a, and a network as it is uh, a cohort of people that are partaking in the markets, right? Um, as we can see, like sometimes they do things that we think the investment thesis doesn't make sense, but they have a point of view they want to express out of it, right? So I think you're absolutely right in the sense that there's a network here that um, can engage in different ways. We think that the social side of it will bear fruit for other ways of, of making sure that that network can engage. We're experimenting with ways on how do we make sure we have content that we create that's by and for the network in a way that feels like it is uh, a self-feeding proce- process in terms of the, the intelligence of the crowd. Um, there's also, from our perspective, the, the ability to do good in education and engaging from a um, uh, where this market is going perspective that I think is also keeps us relevant. Now, not everything we do is going to feed the bottom line, but we think that ultimately, in order to have anything that has the bottom line, it has to continue to feed the wisdom of the crowd and to benefit from the wisdom of the crowd. So for us, social is still very much a key part of that engagement model. I think some people might look at that and think the the wisdom of the crowd has been kind of off um, to an extent. You'll find this funny because you have a good sense of humor, but I I, I remember um, if you think back on, maybe this was the summer, but every brokerage was uh, marketing Dogecoin ads to their site. And you would go through Twitter and you'd see the promoted tweets for Doge. And um, 
you know, I'm not going to, I'm not, I, I try to be nice on the show, so I'm not going to name any names, but you had them promoting, we support Dogecoin now. And that was like right at the top, right? When it was, you know, everybody thought it was going to go to a dollar and now it's down to, you know, below 10 cents from something above, you know, near 70 cents. And it's not just the retail folks, right? It's Kathy Wood too, you know, ARC Innovation Fund is, has been, um, you know, hammered. Uh, but, but it raises the question, which many people in the, in the industry talk about, which is, is it smart to even sort of engage in all of this? And I think no one else would be better positioned to answer this um, than, than you, because you've seen it from, you've seen it for so long. You're not new to this rodeo, but you're still in it. Not only in it, right? I made an asymmetric move leaving something like an established bank uh, to come to this crazy, wonderful place called eToro. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. So you have to remember, like, I'm originally from Ethiopia, right? So I grew up in the in the throes of a revolution. So the idea of mob rule is something that is like embedded in my DNA as to be averse to it, right? So I'm not really into the idea that uh, the mob is the smartest thing. But what I think has happened in our era, which is so exciting about social media, is that I don't think it's the mob per se. What's happening is there is a self-mechanism, a self-clearing mechanism that is happening in social, where there is a balance that takes place within the crowd, where the crowd gets smarter and smarter, and the synthesis of it afterwards becomes something that is really interesting to listen to. So I don't necessarily think the crowd is a mob. I really do think what's happening is with the advent of the access of data and information, it's getting out there faster. So the crowd is the fastest place to listen to it from. Then any one institution, one white shoe firm with their economists sitting at the top of the hill to tell us, to synthesize all the data and then to tell us what it is. The crowd has gotten the access faster. And so, and then what happens with that crowd weaves together that story faster than any one institution can. So I don't think, do I think that in any given time that it, that voice, that crowd is correct? No. Do I think that any investor should just be leaping off of cliffs based on that voice, right? But it is a really important input in our decision-making and in our intelligence. It's a really important input. That does not mean it is a black and white correct voice. So would you view eToro US as a social media company just as much as it is a brokerage? So I don't think we're just a brokerage company, right? So when you think about our platform right now, at least in the US, we also offer crypto, right? Which is not a brokerage offering. Um, so ultimately what I look at the way we, and in the future, we want to have other types of investments, right? Like we are crazy about new initiatives, like um, new digital asset classes, uh, like NFTs and other places where we think that this, you know, the digitization of assets is a really exciting place for us. So I don't necessarily define us either as brokerage or any other type of platform. We want to be an investment, a, so a social platform in which investing is a plausible sort of means of engagement for you. Um, I do not consider ourselves to be just a social um, uh, invest, uh, just a social platform, but definitely a social investing platform. And so when you think about like your, your direct competitors, what, what would be um, maybe the closest comparison? How are you trying to um, fend off market share? 
Well, I mean, we are in the phase of our life where we are trying to grab market share, right? That's, you know, there's no doubt about it that we are trying to make our mark in the U.S. And so where I would say we would fight for market share is to look at who we are, right? So when you look at our platform, we have the majority, the overwhelming majority of our platform is older millennials or younger. So it is tomorrow, what I call tomorrow's investors, right? That are, that are just happen to choose us as today. Um, the second thing you look at when you look at our platform is it's people who are newer, new-ish to this space, right? So we are the quintessential rise of the, um, of the retail investor. So what we want to do is continue to power that. So when you look at our competitors, the nearest ones that I can think of are the ones that are part of the pack. I really don't think of them as... Um, a situation where I think that we're all going to win from this because ultimately the where we are swimming is not the same place that uh, a Morgan Stanley is swimming, for example, right? We are making, we are expanding the market in ways a Morgan Stanley is not necessarily expanding the market. No, they are definitely, you know, they have a bunch more assets because the wealthiest people are not millennial or younger, right? But when that transition happens, when those millennials, as we know, uh, inherit that wealth, we want to be the platform they want to stay at. Right. We want to be the one that they've gotten so engaged with that we're the platform of choice as their inheritance shifts over. Uh, so, again, for me, when I look at our competitive landscape, it's the other fintech you know, folks that are trying to bring this kind of flatness of experience and democratization of investing that we are also trying to bring. The difference for eToro is that, again, as I said, we've got some really interesting things like copy trader and other features that are different from others because social is in our DNA and copy trading is still, you know, nobody else is doing it other than us. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Generational wealth transfer has been something that's been talked about for the past probably five years, half decade. As it happens, you want to be the destination for the people that are going to be on the receiving end of that wealth. What what other things can you do for them, though? Like when you think about maybe more wealthy folks, um, they want tax advice, they want maybe real estate advice, they want um, portfolio construction 
um, which I don't think exists on eToro today. So how do you break into those avenues? So two things. One is generational wealth, but the other is what you're already seeing right now, which is millennials are reaching their age in life where they are accumulating assets. That's what one of the biggest boosts you saw out of this engagement level during this COVID time is also that, right? Like they're getting older. They're getting more of those assets within their own lifestyle lifetime before even the transfer of wealth. Uh, to engage into their the accumulation of wealth for themselves. So we're definitely benefiting from that as well. Um, you know, I'd say to you, I could not in a straight face say to you that we're talking about tax planning right now. It's just not in my roadmap, right? But what I do know is this, if I can crack the code and continue to crack the code, that is, on simplicity of use, ease of access to things, and not overcomplicating things, it opens up our roadmap for all sorts of things to come on our platform. So our commitment is making sure that that roadmap is uncluttered for that purpose. But just to be clear, we are working on portfolios to be able to track. Um, we already have them in our crypto space, but we're working on that for, um, um, for being able to do it with stocks and ETFs as well. So that's coming out next year, this year, that is. Um, we are working on the ability, as I said, to do copy tr investing, which, as you know, is a form of copying another trader or an investor in their strategy. Yet, yeah, and over time, there'll be more things we bring up about uh, that, that keeps this place relevant for that transfer of wealth. But I, I could not in a straight face tell you that it's trust and estate planning right now. Not that I've not done that service elsewhere. Uh, it's just not in our roadmap right now. And neither is it necessary for the demographic we have. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I might fit into that demographic. I'm certainly not thinking about my uh, trust or estate. Barely, uh, barely getting anywhere near that. So when you think about uh, what success is for um, the affiliate of eToro here in the U.S., how close are you to that. When you were brought on last year, what did they want you to get done and how close are you to executing on that? Well, I mean, I've been here four months, <laughs> so I couldn't say that we've been close to executing on that. Um, but so what I was brought on to do was to try to bring the prowess of what eToro has globally to the U.S. markets and be able to have that engagement level uh, gain eToro more than its fair share. That's not going to happen overnight, right? We, it's a, it's a, uh, a longer-term strategy. So our goal for this year and going forward is first filling out all the gaps that we need to to make sure that uh, our competitive advantage from a product perspective is, is there. Um, there's a lot we've done on the global scene that we want to be able to bring to this market. The second is making sure that the U.S. market understands what eToro is. So getting, making sure that our story and our narrative and our brand is uh, top of mind for people as they're thinking of their online uh, digital uh, provider. So it's going to be a big part of our effort. And then the third is really just continuing to be part of that pack that is deemed to be uh, bringing the markets to the retail investor. So whether that's thought leadership that we that we contribute to uh, or uh, uh, policy or whatever the question might be, to be able to be part of the pack that's shaping that, that narrative of that retail investor. So those are the three throngs of the, of the strategy. Bring the prowess of the uh, international market that we have, the international power that we have to the U.S., fill in those product gaps and making sure we have them and then making sure from the top of the mountain people understand what a great place eToro is. 
have you have you read any of those articles about how fund managers are now trying to track dumb money, what they call dumb money retail traders um, as part of their own quant strategies? You know, there are a lot of quant strategies happening right now and people trying to, whether it's the tie, you know, as you know, like there's a lot of people that are trying to understand how the voice of the crowd could be an intelligent source of input. So that's one one of the reasons you know that it's not dumb money is that, that they're all creating mechanisms to be able to listen to that voice, right? Um, whether you think that's a momentum signal or not, it is an important voice. Yes, I or have heard of it. Or a liquidity signal. I mean... Or a liquidity, liquidity signal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, Chris Berth, uh, J.P. Morgan's global co-head of uh, cash equities trading um, really echoes. If if we sum up this entire podcast, it's it um, by by what you've been talking about. It, it kind of is is summed up by this, which is the flow or this kind of like group think that you're talking about. Um, the flow from retail is not something you can ignore if you are a professional investor. I don't think that was maybe the case five years ago or two years ago, right? It wasn't. But I, again, I, I will just, I, I know it sounds like I'm playing the same fiddle, but like, I don't think it's, I, don't, I really don't think it's groupthink. I just think it's a synthesis of many voices into a thesis in any given time that happens. Um, but yeah, it, it's not something you can ignore anymore. But again, what else hasn't been disrupted? They're getting things right. Like they're actually getting things right. Yeah, it's a new investor class that is first on certain themes that play out. Yeah, they're getting it right, but it's also, as I said, I don't think it's a group thing. I'm not saying there isn't a group think element, right? Like there was group think in institutional investing as well, too. Like let's get real, right? It's like this highbrow yeah. thinking of like institutional was so smart, um, and retail was so dumb. I've never, I've never espoused to it, even when I was working for institutional uh, level companies. But I think that you know. It's, it's here to stay because think, tell me any industry that has not been disintermediated by the flattening of the world. Like what makes us think investing is any different, right? Like technology has flattened the world and there's no way that investing is going to be spared that. When did you first like realize that? So I think part of it was for me, um, you know, as I said, like I'm a vagabond, right? Like I grew up in a really brutal revolution. Then I, I was an immigrant most of my life. So when you think about it, like disruption was in my DNA by the time I was like 16. So when the, the throes of like the dot-com bubble came, it, like my background just kicked in. I was like, oh, okay. Disruption is just all the time now. And I think that's when I, you remember you asked me about like, um, you were mentioning when I was at Morgan Stanley, and then I jumped to TD Ameritrade. The reason I did it is because I just knew that eventually that the individual was going to have a voice. And I wanted to be in there shaping products and services that really served that individual. Do you think there could be an institutional element to what you're doing? Like you have this wide ranging background. If the institutional side of the business is underserved, maybe there's ways you can kind of... Uh, you know, get your tentacles on, on, on that area of the industry. But the difference, the reason why the retail space is so fascinating is that 
retail is intrepid, you know, it is uh, unafraid, you know, which is so ironic, right? As I said, like the scripts have, have shifted. Um, and it's so, um, it, it isn't scared to try new things. Um, the way I think, and it makes sense, right? It's counter to the narrative, which is their paper hands and selling bottoms. Yeah, which is completely counter to the narrative. And I think it's, again, it's back is there, is there, but is there data? Is there data like does eToro suggest that data from eToro that suggests that that's not happening? That's not a what? I'm sorry. That that's not happening in terms of like selling bottoms and and buying tops. Because of the fact that I when I, I can look at my platform and I see what happens when VIX drops, right? Whether it's eToro or Ally, every single time the VIX drop, the VIX goes up, markets drop. The next that very day, I see more buys than I see sells. That very day, not even the next day, right? Um, so yeah, absolutely. The trading footprint of the places I've been at and I'm at show that, right? Um, so I think that, you know, part of it is like, I think it, it would be interesting, except I think institutions by definition have a harder time disrupting themselves, you know? Um, and so it's just, it's harder for them to disrupt that. There are a few institutions that do it really well. Uh, by definition, think about it. What is an institution but a preservation of something, right? Um, and so I just think it's hard for it to uh, disrupt itself. Are, I, I'm still kind of shocked, though, at this point that a Charles Schwab and a TD Ameritrade don't support spot, buy, and sell. It's just so easy from a technology technology perspective you can white label it from a paxos or a coinbase like coinbase will literally all right you're potentially a competitor but we will let you white label our service to offer it to your clients and they won't is that surprising to yeah. you it is and it's not remember i've i worked at those places right like so what did i just say earlier i said like, retail by definition like institutions by definition as they get bigger right because you have to remember that the Schwabs and the TD Ameritrades are now the size of institutions, right? Even though their retail is the customer, um, they've got more to lose by going in different places. And so I think that the aversion of risk, whether it's regulatory risk or, you know, aversion, don't ever underestimate the, the, the fear of cannibalization, right, that happens. Um, for whatever reason, because when you get that big, it becomes harder to make those pivots. Um, I think that they'll probably come into it once the regulatory winds feel a little less choppy, which they are right now. Um, you know, they are choppy right now. So once they get a little bit more settled, I think they'll probably get into it. Is regulation something that keeps you uh, panicked at night? Maybe you're like just about to fall asleep and then you uh, jump up and think uh, Gary Gensler might be uh, digging into what I'm doing. You know, uh, it is, I've already priced it into everything. So it doesn't necessarily keep at me at night, but it, it keeps me thinking through everything that we're doing and making sure that uh, we're doing it in a way that's compliant. I told you, like, I, I got a lot of scar tissue, buddy. Like there's, <laughs> you know, it, for me, it's more just getting ready for the kind of, um, you know, situation we're in. And so you think about um, like crypto, you know, we haven't talked a lot about DeFi or the metaverse, but um, you know, what are you, what are you excited about? Like, I, I, I feel like you're a, a market infrastructure person. You're a, a veteran of the brokerage industry. I, resonates with me. I love market structure. But is there something about crypto that's exciting you? And 
that you're you're uh, keen to explore in 2022. Maybe it's the metaverse. Maybe it's something even more uh, weird. I think the metaverse is going to be unbelievable. I think the part that is really uh, hard for people to fathom really is like, I think what's going to happen is you remember I, you know, we talked about earlier how I actually don't think that the co- the pandemic necessarily suddenly made, made retail investors. It's just that all this stuff was bubbling in and then the events happened and it sort of unpacked everything. I think there's going to be a moment like that for us as well as more and more adoption of the metaverse in general, of being in that environment, whether it's in our culture where you're seeing more and more concerts, Alicia Keys. I mean, you I could just rattle off all sorts of, you know, the the Dalai Lama, um, all sorts of people getting into the metaverse, whether it's the fact that, you know, you're seeing the the level of consumption of, uh, you know, tools and devices that engage in the metaverse are going to start skyrocketing, right? Um, So I think that that's going to be the story that we tell the next time there's some disruption that unpacks all of this. So for me, what fascinates me about crypto and digital assets in general, whether it's crypto, NFTs, or anything else, is that I think that they are taking investing to a different stratosphere. And being able to understand how that stratosphere thinks is such a joy to me. Like it is so fascinating for me to see how this this asset class, crypto, in which the investor and the actual beneficiary of the product is one and the same. That's like mind blowing to me. Typically, you know, you'd have, you know, in the old days when the dot com bubble happened, right? You got places like the the you know the Silicon Valley, but a uh, uh, provide players that that won from that from their bottom line as well as from the shareholders that that owned those stocks right but we were the products we were the products at the end of the day if we didn't own those stocks we were the products that made it possible for those stocks to do well right when you think about it you us as users what's fascinating to me about the digital asset class whether it's crypto or nfts is that the user is the same person as the product and therefore the beneficiary is the same person as the one who's spending the money. I think that that's a fascinating place to be in what kind of mind loop that. I think some skeptics might listen to that response and think in the brokerage world though, where you're not paying commissions and you've heard this line probably a thousand times, you don't need me to tell you about it. um, Isn't the, trader then becoming the product because you're routing out orders and, and, and some people might misunderstand it as routing out the data, which isn't exactly what's happening. You're kind of having it internalized by a HFT firm or something. Um, is that not just the same type of situation? Um, the way that, that modern day brokers work? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're you're specifically talking about brokerage, obviously, in this instance. So first of all, I love skepticism. I think that skepticism makes a market, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I, I would say that you know a lot of the things that we're skeptical about within the brokerage industry are the very reasons that made the brokerage industry accessible to retail investor. No doubt about it. All the things that we feel skeptical about are the very reasons why it's accessible to them. So ultimately, I think that and the second thing is this industry is way, way over, 
more regulated than let's say a dating app was or Twitter was, right? So there's regulations that are going to be protecting the consumer in a way that I don't think uh, that is true in other assets, other digital assets that sort of made the consumer the, the product, if you will. I wish we had another hour. I, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I, I guess like if I'm thinking about a way to like close it, we could we could probably go on like a thousand different threads. But um, let me let me sort of like throw it to you, you know, when you uh, got the invite to come on the show, like, was there something that you really wanted to like get across? I know that you're kind of just starting out. So we really appreciate uh, the opportunity to get you in here as a as a newbie in your new seat, but obviously as a veteran in your field. Uh, is there anything you want to share with our audience before we uh, thank you for joining us? So first of all, you know, this is new for me, right? So I was not leading a crypto business before. So part of it was just getting to know you and being part of this conversation with you. So it was as much about uh, putting myself out there and having these discussions with you. Uh, but the second is, you know, I'd say I'd leave you with this thought. The reason why I joined eToro, um, beyond the fact that I'm really interested in what digital asset classes can can mean in revolutionizing our, revolutionizing our world, that I actually think they also make our world more equal. Um, you look at the way ownership of assets, capital, if you will, whether it's capital of home, right? Uh, whether then you go from capital of home to capital of stocks as a mechanism of another form of capital. And we know that the ownership of capital is a means by which generational wealth can be created and therefore equity can be created, right? Because we also know the source of inequity is the fact that people don't have generational wealth to build. And so I would say the, one of the things I'd leave you with is what I find exciting about this space is the power to be able to make this form of ownership of equity, ownership of assets, more and more accessible to the broader public. Crypto, by definition, is more diverse than any other asset class that exists. The only place where it's lagging is on gender. And I am hoping that by people like me talking about it from a representation perspective and us leaning into this, that that gender inequity of ownership is, is fixed. But I'm excited about that, how the access to these types of investment vehicles can also drive a sense of access to capital to more people. That's the only way you're going to be able to move the needle. Like everyone, like we can, we can sort of... Uh, all think about it in our heads, but until we actually like bring it up, it's not going to change. And I did it at the end of our conversation, not at the beginning, because one of the things that I want to make sure we understand is I'm here as a crypto head now, as a as an investment expert, but it's important that representation is there to be able to say that same story. So yeah, thank you for letting me do that. I think it's, it's radically important and there hasn't been enough discussion about it in our space and thinking about how we can bring in new voices of all different types to show the power of what decentralization can bring. We'll have you on again when you're uh, kind of maybe more into the role and, and hear about how it's going, whether you regret going full crypto. Some people do. I don't think you will. Until then, where can people maybe follow what you're doing, learn more about what you're doing? And um, 
I don't know if you're on the Twitter yet. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, actually several places. Yeah. So um, they can follow us on eToro USA, which is our Twitter handle. Um, so please follow us there. Um, and I'm also very active on Twitter. It's Lule de Messe. So at Lule de Messe on Twitter. Um, I'm the only at Lule de Messe on Twitter, so you can't confuse me. But um, thanks so yeah. much for having me. And we me. were talking about, uh, it's, it's an amazing name. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. The Scoop will be back with you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day.